0: What we're now talking about is using um newer technology, APIs, application programming interfaces for for the secure sharing of that data. Open data, open finance, open banking is really just then what data can be shared. So open banking is very much around the transactional account base. So your current account, really minimal data in open finance, that's then broadened down to all different kinds of financial products. So you're sharing your mortgage data, your pension data. Taking that a step further to open data, it's then not just financial data anymore. It's things like your health data, your information you have with your telco provider, even energy. So it then takes it beyond just the financial realm and into any really big utility business that sits on large pools of customer data can then also be exposed. Obviously, as an industry, we're on that journey. Most markets are just Know scratching the surface of open banking. Um, Others are a little bit more advanced, but yeah, we're really at the early stages of this, and it is very much a journey.
1: Hello, Doreen It is an absolute pleasure
0: having you in the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Monica. Really happy to be here. I love your podcast, so really honoured to be asked to join. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
1: So I'm really looking forward to having our conversation. But I want to get to know you a little bit more on the personal level because, like, especially. Well, whether it's life or business, startup or corporate, like sometimes life gets tough. We've all been there and that's like a very common human experience as such. So I want to start with, how did you deal with the tough times?
0: failure, yeah, I, I, I was mulling this over when the, you, know, you draft, sent some of the draw questions to me and uh, I was mulling over the kind of concept of, of failure. And I find it really interesting because at first I, I didn't really understand the question. I didn't really understand why I didn't understand the question. And then I kind of took that around in my mind for a bit and, and kind of asked myself why. And I think it's, I think it's around the concept that I don't really use the word failure or to fail as part of my internal monologue or narrative that we all have with ourselves on a daily basis. It's not really the way I talk to myself. And that's not deliberate. And it's not saying that everything I do is successful. Far from it, but it's, it's kind of not the way I view kind of life, and in particular, your career or your kind of personal development, I, I see it much more a way of kind of a test board. So, you know, there are times where it's very clear you're making advances in you know your personal life or your career, but sometimes, you know, we take very deliberate side steps, or there are challenges that we need to overcome and we need to level set and recheck in with ourselves. And sometimes you, you, you take steps backwards and ultimately to the same outcome. Uh, so I, I don't really use the word failure, but I'm quite a resilient person. Mm. Like I really enjoy those challenges and I kind of thrive in those challenges. So it's, it's almost that kind of internal narrative where, right? okay, well, how can I overcome these? What's the best possible outcome for me in this scenario? And the kind of prisoner's dilemma, you know, how do you get the best out of the situation? And, and I think, you know, we talk a lot about how we appear in the outside world, but also it's how we talk to ourselves and be kind to ourselves and, Some of that is unconscious, but some of that is also very deliberate. But I think that that's a bit of a strategy that I've learned to deal with over the years. Yes, I love that. And I I think like
1: as you were talking, I was like, yeah, I think I do the same thing. It's like I don't talk to myself. I'm like, oh, I failed. I never did that. But on the contrary, when it's like tough, it's more like, uh, well, yeah, it is tough and I'm super resilient, but it's more of the what am I learning? How do I go about yeah, this? Exactly. And, and even though sometimes you're like, it's tough and you're angry or emotional or like whatever emotion comes up with the toughness, whether that's personal life or yeah. work, but still you are like, yeah. but, know, but yeah. Yeah, it's more like... A, I like yeah, the bit of a yeah, 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 I like that. And But I, I, I kind of like hadn't reflected on that. It was more like, how did you deal with the tough times? But it's more like a, probably...
0: Embrace the tough times going forward. Like, I think we, we allow ourselves to kind of revel in our successes, right? Which is like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy this for a day or whatever it is, you know, and you see those championships, you know, in tennis and sports saying, okay, I'm going to enjoy this for a day. I'm going to celebrate and then it's on to work. And that's kind of what we do. And it's also, we should kind of be viewing, well, yeah. or not succeeding in the way that we had envisioned that way. Let's let, sit with it for a, a day, be frustrated you know, and then move on and then kind of get to work. And I think it's, you know, treating the success of the way the kind of lack of development to be seen kind of similarly. I love that. That's great career advice for
1: anyone listening. (laughs) No, but it's true. It's true because, like, I don't know about you, but when I was younger and started my career, no one told me about the, when you build your career, you also need to learn how to manage your emotions
0: throughout
1: your career, especially... Well, at some point, you're mature enough that you know, right? But uh, while you're learning, you're like, well, yeah, managing your emotions is part of building your career.
0: You have so to that's- work like in a relationship, right? When if you're, whether it's your friends or your, you know, lovers or, you know, family, like it's, you know, that they're, they're all relationships that we have and work is another type of relationship, right? And we have to manage how we deal with those, with those things. And, you know, like you say, if you mature, you know, you're able to set your boundaries, your principles, you know, when fun to, to walk away, you know, when fun to, to invest more, you know, and, and it's just another extension of other relationships that we have in our life. Exactly. Definitely. I learned that as well.
1: Awesome. So talking about career, if you look back in your career, what is the piece of advice that you wish somebody gave you when you were younger?
0: I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a number of things like, yeah, quickly. You know, obviously you're new. People are, in my experience, very welcoming of new people. You're not going to know everything about an industry the minute you walk in the door. Uh, and, and I think very few um, senior managers would expect that. Um But take initiative to upskill as quickly as possible. You know, want to be in the room. You know, want to be part of the conversation. Okay, yes, you might not be contributing a hell of a lot in the beginning, but be as fun. Like, take every opportunity as a learning opportunity. Um, things don't happen to you, they happen because of you. So, you know, being present, be listening, be a sponge, I think is, is really, really important. I mean, in our industry, it's primarily a knowledge based industry these days. You need the knowledge. And yes, you can't focus the first years working in an industry. Um, but you know, in 30 years' time, you want to be ideally one of those people that gets to teach the next generation of you know, fintech entrepreneurs or whatever a part of the industry you work within. So I think and I, 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 we, we see this quite a lot of the different work ethics across different generations, and I see this play out all the time, but it, it's really, really important to have that initiative and, yeah, like I say, be part of the conversation. Yeah. And I think
1: you've done that really well as well. Well, as part of your job, you're kind of like the expert. You're an expert in open banking and you're quite technical. It's... <laughs> you're seen as one you're seen as one <laughs> but like you have really embraced that kind of learning as such because open banking and let's say it's relatively new quote-unquote so it's like, much to learn. yeah exactly and it will continue to evolve so as we move a little bit more towards the topic uh, as a subject matter expert
0: What's your take on how we can build more purpose-driven? I, mean, I think there's, there's there's a number of things, right? I mean, I come from a primarily a payment background, so I started my career very much in the payment infrastructure space, um, and we often spoke in those kind of rooms very much of payments particularly being a there, is a, there is a public good aspect of it, and um, you know, ultimately everyone needs to pay and be paid, and I think that's Also true of fintech. Obviously, fintech, some business models, they want to scale and sell and get out and exit the market. And ultimately, then that public good element is lost. I think, you know, it'd be nice for a percentage of fintech business to be earmarked towards some kind of public good element. Whether that, you know, really making sure that uh, you're driving consumer value, whether that be small businesses, you know, retail consumers, you know, whoever it is, and Really making consumers part of the story. I I see a lot of fintech solution. You know they're great, but if you when you peel back kind of onion a little bit, and I can say this to someone that's, you know very much in that kind of infrastructure space, you know they're, they're arguably not really providing that much value to the end consumer. The, the, the clear business objective is to scale to a certain point, have a perceived value, and then exit, which is obviously great for investors and it's great for certain segments of uh, the business. But I think you know to earmark. A certain proportion to a public good, you know, obviously I'm being very kind of like utopian about the um. But I think, you know, that that would really help drive some of that kind of purpose built fintech that you're, you're describing. Um, I think as well, spending time, and I think we'll, we'll go into this a bit later, is investing time and understanding what the foundations are for this fintech ecosystem that we're building. Mm. What's going to make sure that it survives? In 30, 40 years time to continue to drive value and continue to drive purpose. Cause we're all so quickly busy getting on with what we're doing that, you know, we're not, we don't lift our head above the parapet and have a look at, okay, in 40 years time, is all this stuff we're building going to be fit for purpose? And, you know, I come I like a pay payment infrastructure background where we're dealing with that situation right now. You know, we've had 60 plus years of legacy infrastructure that we're now dealing with figuring out how we unwind it or rewire it to be fit for the future. And I think you know, we we want to learn from some of those challenges that we've experienced elsewhere in the industry and not be just very laser focused on the here and now. Yeah, that's
1: a very, very good point. So based on your current expertise, what do you think we need to do now to future prove ourselves for the next 30, 40 years that we are not doing? I think
0: it's developing a an industry strategy around this right this is obviously every individual commercial organization has their own strategies around how they want to leverage fintech you know the customer bases they want to be attract and i think there's there's a broader discussion about what the industry strategy is and everyone needs to be a part of that conversation from the regulators to you know the existing incumbents to you know the newer fintech communities and obviously consumer voices need to be part of that conversation i think you know, the regulators particularly have a talent here because, you know, if you look at the UK and Europe as an example, you know, there's some completing regulators, even in financial services that don't really have a clear story. They don't have a clear picture about what we're trying to achieve in the next fourteen years. It's very much the next three years or the next two years. I think other markets, particularly, you know, your neck of the woods, Monaco and Asia, you know, they have a much clearer picture about the direction. Over the next at least 20 years, which I think really helps the industry to less around the story and mm-hmm. invest in that story. Uh, how does it fit within the broader digital agenda of the market? How does it fit things, conversations around identity and privacy and all of these really big ticket items? Yeah. I think some of the kind of, you know, US, uh, UK, Europe market, we're, we're very narrow. You know, we're, we're very short termist. Yeah. Um, And I think we need to have a kind of industry strategy around, you know, developing the FinTech agenda across the next forty years. Yes. I love that because probably exactly
1: like you say, we don't talk about it much. Like what's the, we talk about strategy within the company, but it's not as an industry, what's our vision as an industry for the Yeah. You know, like the leaders of today need to start looking at that. That's a very good, good thing to think about.
0: I'm like, and we, and we know it. Everything in isolation. We think everything in isolation. Yeah, like, think- if you have open banking, open banking is obviously a, a great conversation. It's just, you know, it's my bread and butter at the moment. But we also have things like real time payments. We have things like identity. We have things like AI. You know, all of these. You know, CBDC to a certain extent. All of these things are somewhat treated in isolation. They're not putting then, Okay, well, how do these things tie together to then? Deliver to an- what we're trying to yeah. deliver in the future. Yes, the, the, the convergence yes. piece. You know, that's the holy grail, I, I guess, for for all of us in the yeah. industry at the moment.
1: Yes, that's such a good point. Exactly, and that's. I think, as actually, as I as I've been thinking about the the podcast and the content, I was like, oh, actually, exactly, we need to start putting together all those pieces and then say, hey, what's the bigger problem that we're solving? So, given us tons to think about. We have not even started the podcast Whatever. properly. <laughs> so, one of the things that I love about you is that you, one, you're a strong leader, and two, you never kind of you were you you embrace your career as being very technical in a very technical and sometimes considered by others boring part of the industry, like. You know the detail, but it's amazing that you know that. Can you can you tell us a bit about your journey and why you decided to know the, the technical bits?
0: Yeah, I would say arguably most people in the industry don't wake up, you know, in their early teens, saying, yeah, yeah, I really want to work in payments. I, you know, I really want to work in this area. So it kind of happened, and it was a fortuitous happening, I must say. So I was a graduate of the recession. I was studied politics. There was no real kind of public sector job at that time. I'd always envisioned I would work for government. Um And there was this job that was going on what was then called the Payment Council. And I'm sure some of your listeners, particularly in the UK, will be very familiar with that. Um, and they were really responsible at that time, given the government mandate for payments infrastructure, but also kind of traditional trade body activities. And I was completed into the standards department of that team. Of that of that organization, which was really gearing towards clinical standards delivery for payments infrastructure. So you could argue quite a, a catchy role, even though it wasn't responsible for the implementation of those standards. It was, you know, assessing what was, what was the right approach for the market. And it was a real sweet spot for me because standards and, and to a certain extent, part of those infrastructure discussions, they're also heavily linked to policy decision. you know. Someone somewhere is saying, this is the reason why this particular standard needs to be implemented in the compliance of uh, a business requirement or an industry requirement. And that would kind of really resonated with me because I do like to get into the detail of things, but I also like the kind of business drivers, the reason behind doing it. So it kind of married the two perfectly for me. And from, I mean, I am not a deep techie. I'm not sitting there writing code or anything like that, but I like to understand. You know, the impact of change on, mm. you know, for those that are actually going to go and have to implement this stuff, right? It's all easy, as sticky as business people or as policy people to say, oh, we must do this. This is a really good idea. And have no understanding whatsoever of how actually this is implemented in practice. You know, what it really takes from the technical side to make it happen. And I think, you know, that's that's a gap. That's a vacuum in our own, in our own self. And I'd like to kind of help to bridge that gap, you mm-hmm. know, to talk a little bit to the techies, but also of the understanding the business drivers about why this stuff is really important. So yeah, and I, I, I kind of really enjoy that sweet spot between you know the regulatory last business agenda and the and then the technical impact no, of techie. what we're of what we're getting there.
1: Yeah, awesome. I love that you said you'd like to see the impact of change. I'm like, yeah, that's a very good career driver as well it's like, yeah, it keeps yeah. me motivated. What, whatever we're doing at work.
0: Yeah. You know, we we'll see the uh, impact. It makes it
1: very relevant.
0: And, it, and if you're kind of like me, like this industry I anticipate I'll spend my entire career in, you know, and change is often slow, particularly at an industrial level. You know, you want to be invested in that change. You want to see the impact. You know, probably the fruits of my labor in some instances, I'm not going to see for at least another decade. You know, if I'm lucky. So you kind of have to be invested in that slow, kind of cautious change and, and kind of take it wherever you can get it. Exactly. Exactly. I'll just do a little
1: break. Your screen went black. So Ooh. I don't know. Do you see yourself? Because I have a note here that says actual recording is higher quality. But uh, if you see yourself, then it should be fine. Yeah, I can see myself. I can see myself. You can of. see yourself. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm back. Sure. Okay. Okay. Cool. okay. Then we can. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. No. I, was just yeah, I, I can see yeah, five. Yeah. Okay. Amazing. Cool. Cool. Okay. So moving on. There are these terms that we hear in the industry in LinkedIn. And I believe we may not really understand what they are. And if we don't understand what they are in detail, then we cannot have a proper conversation. Like you said, like we cannot go and implement something if we don't really know the impact of what we're talking about. So can you expand on what is the difference between open banking, open
0: data, and open finance? Sure, I can do do that. So, I mean, essentially all three, in its purest sense, is is third-party access to a customer's account with their explicit consent. So this is allowing not the traditional front door shop that you would access these services, whether it be a bank, whether it be another financial service provider, whether it be a telco, for example, a third party is being able to access those accounts on your behalf with your consent. Now, this has been going on since roughly like 1980, but it's been happening through essentially unregulated, unauthorized... Mm. Scraping. So it's where the financial service provider hasn't known that the fintech has, has been accessing these customer accounts uh, through screen scraping behind closed doors. So we're now seeing a shift. And this has been going on, like I say, since 1980 when the German post office conducted its first screen test. And, you know, if this isn't new by any stretch. The U.S. has had open banking for, you know, 20 years um, yeah. in, that, in that kind of realm. What we're now talking about is using um, newer technology. APIs, application programming interfaces for for the sharing, sharing of that data. Open data, open finance, open banking is really just then what data can be shared. Um mm. so open banking is very much around the transactional account base. So your typing account, your current account, really minimal data set being shared in open finance. That's then broadened down to all different kinds of financial products. So you're sharing your mortgage data, your pension data. So that data set around the type of financial products that you're then sharing with those parties increases. Taking that a step further to open data, it's then not just financial data anymore. It's things like perhaps your health data, your information you have with your telco provider, even energy. So it then takes it beyond just the financial realm and into... Any really big utility business that sits on large pools of customer data can then also be exposed. So, you know, obviously as an industry, we're on that journey. Most markets are just scratching the surface of open banking. Um, Others are a little bit more advanced, but yeah, we're really, really at the early stages of this and it is very much a journey.
1: Yes, and that's why this conversation is so relevant because it's just the beginning of the journey. Which then takes me to can you t- because there's many players in in the open banking space as such as well. So can you tell us what does Open Banking Exchange do? Why are you different from all the other open banking people?
0: <laughs> I know, yes, on, and there are so many right now. Um, open Banking Exchange is part of a broader group called Consensus. So Open Banking Exchange focuses very much on assessed advisory capabilities. The whole group is entirely open banking focused. So we live and breathe this stuff. We have been since 2015, 2016 when open banking was in the very early, or regulated open banking within the very early stages in the UK and Europe. So we've been living and breathing this stuff for for some time now. But Open Banking Exchange focuses very much on advising central banks, regulators, market infrastructures on how to deploy an open banking ecosystem that is essentially fit for purpose. What are you trying to achieve and how can you achieve it through whether it's regulated, through governance regime, through centralized infrastructure? We really help them map out the road to success. And In the wider part of the business, we all have also support the trust layer of open banking ecosystem. So we know very much that trust is a huge issue when deploying open banking and it's critical to its success. So we provide essentially a technology layer that enables financial institutions, third-party FinTechs to all understand the roles and responsibilities that everyone plays and in real time so that everyone can feel comfortable with sharing that, you know, really crucial sensitive data with each other. So we like to call ourselves experts in this field. I think, you know, that's that's a fair assumption living and breathing this stuff for, for so many years now, but we really kind of focus on those national implementations. Making sure that everyone has their fair building blocks to to build a
1: successful open banking ecosystem. I love that because, like you say, it's about building blocks. It's about having the foundations. It's about being a journey, which then leads me to what is the journey of building these found. found, What is the journey of building these foundational leads and even actually like more financial inclusion?
0: Yes, I mean. in our view, there isn't a cutie-cutter kind of style. We hear this all the time, like, oh, but can I just implement what they've done over there? And I mean, yeah, literally mm. in theory, you can. But it's not necessarily going to provide the correct foundation for your market, as we've seen everywhere. It's the same, you know, to a certain extent with payments. Retail banking and payments are so culturally linked that, you know, what works in the UK is not necessarily going to work uh, in Singapore or work in, you know, Colombia or, or elsewhere. So it's very m- much building on those kind of best-of-breed practices and taking them into a market and, and making, adapting them where they make sense. Financial inclusion is obviously a, a key policy agenda item for, for many markets out there. i I'd like to have a distinction between financial inclusion and financial access, though, because I think in the in kind of more developed economies, it's very much about financial access. It's about access to the underserved or the underbanked access to a bank account is is not a core issue for many in those markets. But obviously where you go to less developed economies it is very much about I don't inclusion. It's about unbanked, you know, or individuals or organizations that have, don't have access yeah. to a bank account. So I think, you know, that this it's an important thing to make. Open banking is of course a key part of that journey. It's a key asset. But I think ultimately it's just one part of a much bigger story, right? I mean Opening up access to a bank account, if you don't have a bank account, it's not going to be relevant to you. So I think that, you know, that initial leg of even accessing a bank account, the important open banking is not in isolation going to solve. You know, I think there's broader discussions, which is, you know, to your earlier point about open data, that's where the power really lies. You know, in some of these uh, economies where actually not everyone has access to a bank account, but they definitely have access to a phone you know and, and a phone network then the combination of these different areas will add you know incremental value over time so i think you know financial inclusion if it was easy to solve we would have solved it by now we've been talking about financial inclusion for you know as long as you know i've probably been in in nothings but i think uh, we, we need to see it as part of open banking as part of a bigger story around financial inclusion definitely and
1: what is what is the role of legislation and the regulator in all this story?
0: Yeah, I, I, we get asked this quite a lot, actually. I mean, our view is, is some form of regulation is is helpful. However, we've also seen markets where open banking has been exceptionally successful in the absence of regulation. Arguably, the US, in terms of access and access to customer account is one of the most successful open banking markets on the planet that's not regulated now that being said the regulator probably going to step in over the next few months and and make some changes to that but you know open banking has been able to to thrive there so i think we really have to be careful about what we mean by regulation and the role it can play likewise in asia i mean singapore classic example not regulated at all but arguably very successful but they also have a very very different regulated to industry dynamic that doesn't exist in many other markets So, i think you know if you look at europe open banking would never have happened if it wasn't for regulation i i pretty pretty much assure you of that and i would say likewise of the uk or at least not in the way that we have 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 it today so for me regulation is is a really useful building block it enables us all to understand the rules of the game so what fintechs are able to participate um, under what rules are they able to participate? You know, in some instances, common standards, which makes it much easier for uh, both the FIs and the banks to develop services and products around it because there's a baseline kind of level set, um, for everyone. So I think it's, it's a really critical. And we've, we've done quite a bit of analysis on this where the single question that we ask at the beginning is, do you have to regulate? Can you achieve the same objectives that you're trying to achieve without it? you don't necessarily want to go down that road if you don't have to. I love it. <laughs> it's the first time that it's kind of, yeah, really
1: like there's evidence of markets, not companies, but like markets on its own where this works with or without regulation for different reasons. And then we need to ask ourselves, do you really need to regulate it? Does it yeah, yeah, you and know, I- like, what's the role of the? regulation in this specific picture, in this specific context.
0: I, love, I love doing that yeah. yeah, they have so much FOMO at the moment. Regulators, they're all looking at each other. Oh, they doing CBDC over there? I need to do CBDC. Here. Oh, they're doing open banking over there. I better do open banking over here. And it's, it, um, we kind of constantly say, take time, sit down. It's not going anywhere. Figure out whether this is what you want to do. And this is you're going to achieve your policy objectives by delivering this. And if that's the case, then how, what's the best implementation method for your market to get to those objectives and, and really sit with it and sit and have the time and do the work. Don't just kind of rush through, you know, regulation that you're going to regret in a year's time. I I totally love it. And I think many
1: people who are building fintechs love that too. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, but, but you also touched on the standards, which are quite important as well, because it makes the industry work well together as such. And recently, many of us, including myself, there is a new standard that is PSD3. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us? What does this entail?
0: Uh, I mean, PSD3, yes, a new piece of regulation that the European Commission has come up with in a whole suite of regulatory measures that they bestowed. Quite nicely on the industry over the summer period. In my on PSD3, and I know there'll be some out there and I've had this conversation with a few guys on LinkedIn. It's not hugely exciting. Let's be honest. It's taking some of the, I would say, regulatory detriments of PSD2 and trying to plug the gaps a little bit. So there's some interesting kind of nuggets around strong customer authentication, you know, but arguably it's, it's not hugely riveting stuff here I would say the FIDA regulation which is financial data access is where everyone should be looking right now this this takes also, and also and tries to mitigate some of those albeit you know still very challengingly but also then takes it to a step further so this is really the start of open finance in Europe now this is pretty much every possible financial product you can imagine is now in scope of opening up to third parties so mortgages pensions insurance investment vehicles crypto asset other digital asset everything now has to be exposed to third parties and not only does it have to be exposed to third parties it has to be exposed in a standardized way which wasn't the case with open banking you know four or five years ago and it has to be developed within the confines of one or more schemes so essentially creating a governance structure now for open finance in Europe, which, again, wasn't there before.
1: Yeah. What's your take? I find this very, very exciting. (laughs) I'm like, oh, this is super exciting. Right Monica, it is. 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 That's because then it's, I'm like, it opens a world of possibilities on innovation and the potential products that we can do. And I'm thinking without thinking of all the restrictions that I'll have, but I'm like, oh, just imagine.
0: I mean, if you look at open banking, transactional accounts. And not very interesting like there's not my current account is not is not hugely interesting it's not hugely insightful okay yeah i may have another bank account with another bank that okay it's nice to pair the two but ultimately my world is not going to change when you start to get into okay well actually i can now view my pension i can now view my different insurance products i can now maybe have some money set aside in some kind of investment fund you know Whatever the case may be, or mortgages and things like that, then you're providing essentially financial portfolio for every individual customer um, And when you talk about things like financial access and financial literacy, you know that that's hugely powerful now it becomes much yes. more exciting and, and the the fintech opportunity is is baffed.
1: I loved it. I'm really looking forward to the innovations that will happen as a result of these. So, me too. I mean, we may be a nice. few years
0: away from it yet, but I'm excited to see what's going happen.
1: Yes. <laughs> Which leads me to, this is going to force fintechs and banks to innovate and it's going to force them to have a little bit of more of a competitive side to each of them because now our information will be more open across all the financial products. So what's your take on open banking, open data, fostering competition and innovation?
0: I mean, I think, again, this this is a journey, right? So I think, you know, particularly in Europe, the banks or the, at least in the in the short term, is very much a compliance, like both. You know, at least across the bank accounts that I have in both the UK and Europe, I haven't seen a huge amount of Of products off the back of open banking. That being said, I can pay my tax bill in the UK using open banking payments. So there, there are definite use cases that have trickled down to me as a consumer. But I think we're we're still in the very early stages of meaningful consumer experiences. I know there are fintechs out there that like will say the opposite, but as if I put my consumer hat on, I'm not seeing a huge amount of those in my day to day life. But I think as open finance starts to take off, we will start to see that competition edge out even more. And I think banks will start to compete with each other a bit more where there's more value in it for them. I mean, most transactional accounts in Europe are either free or they're a minimal cost. So the the competition element is not so pronounced. But when you're talking about big ticket items like mortgages and stuff like that, then I think you know the, the competitive advantage becomes more real for the bank. Mm-hmm. I think obviously competition in the fintech space is is much more fierce. You know they're they're competing for you know some of the embedded finance kind of conversations with merchants. You know it, it becomes a much more fierce conversation. You know some of them are really. I think the competitive element amongst fintech fintechs is, is real. I, I'm seeing less of the competition between banks and fintech than we. Had thought there would be at the beginning. So I think one yeah. of the conversations was very much are oh, these syntax, they're going to eat all the bank revenue, like, you know, they're going to steal all the bank customers. And ultimately, we haven't really seen that materialized yet. Maybe, maybe it will as open finance starts to progress, but at least in these stages, I think the banks are still very much, you know, front and center of the consumer Strong. experience.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's interesting because, like, well, I was part of one of the first neo banks fintechs in the UK, this is eight years ago. And the narrative started back then, right? Like, oh, yeah, the yeah. fintechs are going to it, the banks launch. And then a few years later, it's like, oh, yeah, banks are paying attention to fintechs. But it's been eight years yeah. and it's still not no. that disruptive. And probably we yeah. all still have our bank account with our main bank and a exactly. bank with a big brand that has been there forever <laughs> and some fintechs.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's some really interesting statistics, of I don't know them off the top of my head. Around like, you know, in the UK at least, it's, it's a significant percentage of people. I mean, well into the 80s, 90s, that get paid their salary into their main bank account with one of the top nine banks in the UK. They're not getting paid into a neobank, you know, Wise or a, or a Revolut or whoever. You know, they're using those for supplementary services that they maybe can't access through their bank or to enhance that experience. But they're not their primary account is not with those organizations. And I mm-hmm. think that's that's the kind of balance at least that we'll we'll continue to see in the short term. FinTech will enhance these offerings, not, not lessen them.
1: Yes, because I think it's also about trust. Somehow as exciting well, and I'm the biggest fan of FinTech, right? <laughs> as exciting as it can be or innovative or easy or whatever, you still you know, like, well, it's a uh, Barclays, it's an HTC, it's a uh, Lloyd's, it's a Citi. You know, like, these are like big brands, established brand. banks that give you kind of confidence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And they've been around for you know, a long, long time and they invest serious amounts of of money, both from a marketing perspective and from an infrastructure perspective to, to keep that uh, trusted kind of brand. Yeah, you know, some of the banks, in particularly in, in Northern Europe, for example, you know they're some of the most trusted brands in the country, uh, not just within finance but within everything. So, you know they and and they deserve to to continue to keep that that spot. I mean, I think what I really like, and I've seen some of the banks in in Asia do this, and and in Singapore, and I kind of hope that this kind of trend or model will take off in 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 Europe and, and the UK. Is that the banking apps are so strong they have you know and they've really leveraged open banking ai eid you know that convergence that we were talking about earlier on they've really brought that to my consumer in their own app you know i i as a consumer want an app like that and i'm annoyed that in the uk i don't have that and all all of those i mean we don't have eid but apart from eid all of the other building blocks are there right we have real time payments we have open banking you know Banks are obviously testing and using AI to a certain degree. There's no reason why I, I can't have those that app in my home market. That the banks just don't offer that. So I think, you know, there are really exciting things that the banks can be doing for their uh, retail customers. Mm-hmm. And there are banks out there that are are taking advantage of those things and taking advantage of the FinTech opportunity.
1: Yes. So that makes me think. Like, because we've been talking about innovation and basically how open banking, open data, open finance can change everything for consumers and for financial inclusion as well. But it makes me think like with anything, the more I have these conversations, it's like, it is not about technology. It's never about technology. It's Not. not. Culture is one of the biggest either propellers or setbacks on how we're going to solve any of these challenges of money, stress, and financial inclusion. Yep. Because then it's, it's, it's mindset.
0: It's mindset. Across, and across, banking, the, industry, uh,
1: across yeah, the industry.
0: And that's top, top down. I mean, you look, I mean, we, we have conversations quite frequently in the open banking space, you know, uh, open banking is generally not a vote-winning Policy agenda item. You know, it, it's not someone, you know, if, if, if you're a potential future government and you go to London for open banking ahead of an election, one, you're lucky if anyone cares. And two, if they do care, it's probably going to be negative because it's very difficult to pitch open banking to the average retail consumer as a positive thing. Even though it is, it, they'll see the, the security risk, all, all of those associated conversations. Um, so it really takes actually quite a, and and I guess it's the same with you know senior management within banks. You know ultimately, they they don't want to be responsible for a data breach, or they don't want to be responsible for creating a product that fails or doesn't make any revenue or doesn't hit their target. So you know th- there's this balance between you know and, and ultimately I have this conversation quite a lot. But banks aren't charities. At the end of the day, you know no. they they also need to make money. And they will ultimately drive products where there's revenue to be made. And I think they haven't cottoned on to, or at least maybe it's starting to change, is that stickiness within a bank's environment is what will keep customers coming back and what will keep customers uh, wanting to use their products and services. And that's fine with there's no fintechs that can offer the same service, but maybe in the future with new generations that have Less of that relationship with the, the larger bank will be quite happy to, you know, like you say, have their salary in a in a neo bank or bank provider. So, I think the banks are in this kind of interesting position. Um, I think, you know, creating that stickiness, creating that value add, is is still really really important, and it might not necessarily convert to hard line pound and pence or euros and cents, but will will keep customers engaged.
1: Yeah, right. Like, exactly. Because, like, within the bank, it's, like, the create the stickiness within the ecosystem. For now, for customers, probably millennials upwards on some of the gen sets. But for the alpha generation, when they become, like, young adults and they are 18, 20, 23, 25, by then, like, all these fintechs will not be a new thing. They will be, like, totally established across the world, and it might be that they are like, oh, but the banks are kind of old. (laughs) I'd rather use them than you. Right. And then it will become an issue for the banks. But we were just talking about trust that it's like their biggest asset may not be there for the alpha generation. That they may be
0: trusted, but trust might not be the reason why... Uh, that generation cares to engage in financial services. Exactly. It, you know, trust is really important to to me and to my generation. But for for future generations, trust might not be the, the the selling point anymore. And and you know, I look at my my niece, and you know, she's you know a certain age, and you know, some, even some of these social networks, she's past it. She finds them totally antiquated. Instagram? Who wants to use Instagram? You know, she's on. Talk and, uh, Snapchat, And all of these other things that I wouldn't have the faintest interest in using. And I think that's, that's exactly it. You know, all of these things that we think are really new and interesting and, and exciting, they think already they're all hacked. They're, they're boring. They're not interesting at all. So I kind of think that the same mentality applies to kind of financial services, right? And I think there's lots of industries out there. I read this extreme, really interesting article the other day about uh, a large UK news, some of their coverage of Ukraine war and all of these other types of things. If and they're a 24 hour rolling news station, right? So, and they have YouTube, you know, they're 24 hours, they have everything. Some of their biggest viewership is on TikTok and Snapchat. Like, if yes. uh, and you're talking millions and millions of views, whereas, I mean, the TV station is, is, is almost menacing now. Um, then I think it's, it's, finding a way to access these newer customers or, or, or people that aren't even customers yet. They're going to be customers yes. in maybe 15 years' time. Yes.
1: And this comes back to the beginning of the conversation that we were talking about the, having a strategy for the industry yep. and we need people to start thinking about the next 20, 30, 40 years, not just today and tomorrow in three years' time max. Also, yeah, I, we
0: need to invest in our future, Monica, you see.
1: We do. <laughs> Which takes us back to your original point. We need to study and learn and knowledge because that's the future <laughs> as well. Exactly it's been, exactly been a fascinating up. conversation. I want to, as we move like closer to the end of the chat, I want to go back to you rather than open banking as such. Mm-hmm. So you are quite an accomplished professional in the industry, you are in the board at the Open Banking Expo, you are the chair of ISO TC68, CS2 Security Financial Services. That sounds like a very long thing. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, you've, prob- you've previously run your payments consultancy firm. Like, you're super accomplished. So, question. how did you get into a role in a board? And and the reason why I'm asking it's because it's also coming from the diversity uh perspective. That it's like I do believe that we need to have those role models and show them to other people that are currently not in those roles to say, Oh yeah, I can get there. But many times they don't know how to get there.
0: So yeah, how did you get
1: in into the board? Yeah,
0: it's so, like I mean, from open banking exchanges point of view, you know, we built up quite a Degree of credibility in this space, like I said before, I mean, if you're in the knowledge-based industry that we are, at least as a professional services company, you know, our our bread and butter is the knowledge that we have in our heads. And you really have to be at the front and center of, of, of the game, right? You have to have the most up to date knowledge that there is on this subject. And Open Banking Exchange, we've we've built up that credibility in the market. Uh, Essentially, I organizationally we were offered that role to sit on the advisory board, obviously to support. You know, I I thankfully work for a a great organization that is, you know, very pro diversity, and and you know, I I essentially stuck my hand up and said, you know, this is something I really want to do, something I feel really passionate about, and you know, luckily has has the leadership really supportive leadership team that was that was. You know, cognizant of my abilities and very happy and trustworthy to be in that position. And I'm conscious that, you know, that's not always the case. And, you know, I've heard some pretty, pretty awful stories in the industry that still exist. If that not be the case, but I think it's, it's a combination of, in my mind, you have to be good at what you do. And this is why, you know, the, the knowledge part of it is so important. But I think from a leadership perspective, it's also you have to be conscious of allowing. Those, you know, from diverse backgrounds. And I say this not just as a, as a gender issue, it's right. sort of diversity issue across the board, allowing them to take those positions. And, and I kind of think, you know, one of my, one of my key kind of next things that I want to get involved in is, is the kind of diversity question. Cause we see a lot of these kind of women in payments, women in open banking, women in thing, you know, the next thing. And I think, you know, the industry in general is lacking kind of a lot of diversity. Whether that's you know religious or race or, or otherwise, and I think that's that's the next step for me is to, is to kind of get more active in that
1: space. Awesome, I love I love the. I, I also want to get more active on the diversity space, but it's yeah. what I love. It's I've I personally, Monica, I've come to realize that I love living in the UK and I love living in Malaysia because of diversity. When I was in Mexico, mm-hmm. it was just like Mexicans. That's it. Yeah. And then, yeah. when I was in the UK, it was like, oh, there's people from everywhere. And then here yeah, yeah. in Malaysia, there is like, exactly, it's a very diverse country. And with yeah. that comes diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, right, yeah. arguments, this, the other. And I'm like, oh, that is super cool. It's not a gender diversity quality. No, it's a, let's it's bring happening. different views to the table. Yes.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Cause I think, you know, and, and I often find that these kind of, you know, women in open banking, which, you know, they're, they're all fantastic forums, like really fantastic. And it's great, you know, standing board, obviously for newer generations and stuff as you exactly how do you get into leadership with this and how do you tackle these situations? Um, they're great forums for those. Um, but I think what we're lacking in general is what is it about? Different voices that are required at the policy level required at the business level required at the technical level in in all different parts of the industry because sometimes when it's a conversation of you know women in whatever it's really a conversation about women in tech um yeah. but actually we we need women in policy you know because these are the, facing the decisions, facing you know the the policy objectives of the country you know and that it just be women all or, or walks of life um, and same with you know women in in product you know, setting up women in, in product roles because ultimately women use these products, so they have a different trajectory way of thinking or using them. So I think it's, it's not just viewing financial services as well as just like one thing. Like there are so many different layers of financial services that need to be, you know, fully diverse. That is spot on because you
1: cannot, the the financial services industry as such, is quite complex. Yep. So we cannot yes. solve real problems without including all of the elements within the industry. And then within each of the elements of the industry, have diversity on each team as such.
0: And yeah. Yeah, no, I think we'll be in a good place. We'll be in a good place for, for developing for the future. Yes, I th- I
1: think I think we're doing the work today for yep. the future, which we, is we, amazing. We're on the
0: industry, Monica. <laughs> <laughs>
1: both of us are very active so we are, we are influencing <laughs> at least that's what we need. that's what we no, I love think it. about I love um, it. it's been a pleasure having you in the show where can we find more about you and Open Banking Exchange
0: so obviously we're uh, active on all of the kind of main social media networks we also have uh, website www.census.com and uh, openbanking.exchange where you can find more information about all the products and services that we offer. But equally, if you're implementing open banking at a national level, please please get in
1: touch. Exactly. And I'll add all the details in the show notes. Uh, As a very last question, if you could change one thing, just one thing in the industry that could make lives better for customers, staff and shareholders, what would that be? I mean, I think there's,
0: there's so many things, but one is, I think I'd love to get to a place where we can have, you know, really proactive decisions around lowering the cost of, of infrastructure. I think it's, it's a really, you know, back to the point about unsexy. It's really unsexy, but ultimately, said, wow. you know, the, you know, the cost of infrastructure, you know, the ecosystem becomes much more accessible. We can reduce inequality. There are so many trickle on positive effects that, you know, not having to invest huge sums of money in infrastructure. And the technology is there these days, right? We just, just, again, back to your mindset point. And I think my, my ask to the regulators is let the industry breathe. You know, there's, there's so much regulation going on. There's so many mandatory, you know, change items that one, it's hard to even see whether, where success is whether we've been successful in deploying any of these regulatory initiatives, just let the industry breathe, let their time to take stock and reassess before we get on to the next thing. And I think that, you know, one of the other key things for me is work with other industries. You know, to the financial inclusion point, you know, financial services is not in isolation. You know, we need to work with other industries to build products that can work across a range of use cases, range of customers, range of scenarios. And I think we just need to get a lot better at that. Awesome. Yeah, I totally agree that it's, we need
1: to cross-pollinate if we want to really That's solve for financial
0: inclu- inclusion.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's been a pleasure, Lorraine. Thank you so much Thank for joining so much. us. And, Thank uh, you. It's been an absolute pleasure, Monica. Thanks so much for, for asking me to join. Thank you. Everyone, see you next week. Ciao, ciao. Thank you, everyone.
1: That was really cool. cool.